Hello and welcome to the KulturmittlerInnen, the IFA podcast on foreign cultural policy. My name is Amira El Al and I'm very happy that you are joining us again. After what seemed to be a democratic change in Myanmar, starting with the election in 2011, Myanmar suffered a backlash on their democratic aspirations. On February 1st, 2021, when the newly elected parliament was to meet for the first time, the military initiated a coup d'etat. This coup resulted in multiple arrests, including the arrest of the democratic leader Aung San Suu Kyi. Since then, a civil war has been simmering in Myanmar, leaving thousands of civilians killed and arrested. My guest today is Mathida. The surgeon, author and human rights activist was arrested in Myanmar in 1993 and sentenced to 20 years in prison. The charges were endangering public peace, having contact with illegal organizations and distributing unlawful literature. After six years in prison, she was released due to her health condition and international pressure. Currently, Mathida is living in Berlin, where she was a scholarship holder of the Martin Roth Initiative, which enables artists to reside in Germany and other safe countries. And currently, she is in a writer-in-residency program at the Freundeskreis Schloss Wiepersdorf. A warm welcome to the KulturmittlerInnen, Mathida. Thank you. In 1988, a peaceful protest started in Myanmar due to the economic situation, the 4-8 uprising, as it is called. During this time, Aung San Suu Kyi emerged as a national figure. You also joined the movement behind Suu Kyi, and shortly after, you were arrested and sentenced to 20 years in prison. When you compare the 4-8 uprising to the situation today, what is different? Well, indeed, this current situation is not the separate one. It's the continuation of the 4-8 protests. Uh, it's a big movement, and the uh, 4-8 movement is the foundation of the revolutions towards the democracy. So the thing is, in 4-8 movement, there was the so-called socialist government and the movement was very genuine and it makes the, I might say, the generations of the rebellion throughout since 88 until now. Because from the eyes of the international community and the others, it sounded like the past decades from 2010-11 to 2021, it's like we already on the road of democracy. But indeed, Because of the 2008 constitutions, undemocratic, uh, undemocratic, and very much like a big trap. So the past decades doesn't necessarily mean we were on the right track to democracy. So we having uh, gone through all these obstacles and the problems, whether it is pretty much like in the negative situation or the positive situations, we were still not yet far from the democracy. So the current revolution is not the separate one, it's like the continuation of the 4-8 revolution. And 
The other difference I might see is the more violent crackdown from the military. It's not even violent, you know, the way the military regimes acting against its own people is like the terrorist organizations. The violence and the terror is very different. The way the military regimes practicing is more on the terror, not just simple violent action. So the way it's handled the peaceful protester is aiming the protester heads to deliberately kill them, not just making the control over, you know. They literally want to kill people and they use over 100 airstrikes to the civilians. And they also use arsons, the burning villages and people alive as a weapon to crack down the revolution. So the way the military has been doing is more on the terror sites right now. In the 1988, of course, the people were not that much uh, determined to protest because, you know, there was no chance to learn about the basic human rights, what is basic human rights, etc., etc. But because of this past decades experience, a little bit glimpse at the freedom and the kind of the understanding about what is their rights, people are now determined to against the military regime. That's why the reaction was pretty uh, pretty strong, you know. Our revolution started in the February 2021, but until now, every single day, there was a fight, either as the peaceful protest or as the armed conflict. So this is the, the biggest difference. And another big difference is in 1988, for the civilians, for the people, there is no legitimacy whatsoever. You know, it's directly from the uh, so-called socialist regime to the military takeover. But right now, there was 2020 November election, general election, and the elected members of parliaments and the other kind of the legitimacies is still vividly going on, but they try to undermine or they try to vanish the result of the 2020 election. That's why right now for the civilian side, for the revolution side, they have full legitimacy. They have their own elected people to govern the country. But, you know, there was the coup attempt. That's why in 88, there was deliberately, we can say, there was the coup. Right now, it's just the coup attempt. Even they violated their own 2008 constitution. So, I mean, the UN experts are describing the developments in Myanmar nowadays as like a civil war. And you have like armed resistance, peaceful protests and civil disobedience at the moment. So you would say that's very different to what happened in 1988, if I understand correctly. Yes, of course. Very different. In 2016, you published your book, Prisoner of Conscience. It's the story about your journey of survival in the insane prison. You talk a lot about self-determined freedom and that even in prison, one can choose to be free. Could you elaborate on that and explain to us how this self-determined freedom could look like for the Burmese people nowadays in this situation that is so difficult? 
Yeah, I I always say freedom is not by chance. It's by choice. So right now, another difference is, you know, in 1988, people didn't dare enough and they don't understand their uh, perfect rule in decision-making for the, the present and future of the country. But right now, the the essence of the understanding these things, making them very much determined not to be governed by the military. So this is another way of self-determined freedom they chose, you know. So they say, okay, you can try to make the coup attempt, but we already determined not to be governed by military dictatorship. That's why they, even though they lost their Uh, loved ones, they lost their properties, they lost their everything, but they all determined not to give up. They just claim we have full of authority ourselves, that we have freedom to choose to be governed or not to be governed. So this is how I really believe that self-determined freedom is still there as someone who believes in democracy and freedom of choice. And as a writer... I suppose you always had a special bond to literature, also a way of finding freedom is in literature, right, uh, reading. You stated in multiple interviews that you see writing in literature as a form of protest and even a platform of the revolution. Um, this revolution, however, takes place in a world where literature has been taken over by other forms of media and people may not have as strong of a bond to literature anymore as maybe you have. What role does literature play in Myanmar today? Is it also a tool for freedom? Uh, right now it's very difficult because of the very much surveillance system, not just the surveillance system, you know, after the 2021, you know, they try to arrest not just the someone who committed the protest or the, the revolution or the resistance, but also if they cannot find someone, they even arrest the elderly persons, the father, the parents, or their kids, the underage kids. So the way their response, for example, like recently, an editor, the, the news journal editor, he just changed his profile picture into black in, in expressing his want for noticing the airstrikes killed more than a dozen small little kids. Then he was arrested and he was charged for defaming the state, something like that, for showing his sorrow, you know. So this kind of pressure making a lot of the writers and the people who can create literature not creating nor uh, showing to the public, something like that. So this is very difficult situation right now. And I just want to say, you know, the literature creativity... I don't believe it is just the protest. It is beyond it, you know. It's just expressing ourselves in free form, you know. Maybe the way a lot of people interpret uh, expressing ourselves in pretty free form might be the protest against the one who wants to control us, something like that. So for me, it's literally is more on the freedom, not just the protest. But it can be interpreted by someone who want to restrict our freedom, then as a protest. So you say, like today, literature 
does not affect the protests in Myanmar, if I understand correctly, because it's too dangerous to write and it's too dangerous to, uh, you know, state your opinions, even if it is through uh, literature. Yeah, not that much, but it's just uh, try to reflect some feelings and try to making the documentation. You know, so right now, more on the journalism side, less on the literature side, because the literature people cannot do much. But we don't know. They might just write and keep it in, in their decks. So at one point, we can see. But right now, I think that there will be not much. But still, I can see, you know, for example, like my prison memoir, you know, in the prison, after they were arrested and sentenced in the prisons, after 2000, I believe after 2014-15, uh, there are a couple of libraries inside prisons. And some prisons allowed to read my prison memoirs and some activists who were sentenced to such and such who were in prisons, they read this. And then they they being they, they show that they told me, you know, they have been after they were released, you know, they have been pretty much encouraged by reading this and then they they can keep their protests or the rebellious uh, resistance, I mean the resistance even inside the prison with the help of reading this kind of literature. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Um the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the ASEAN, decided not to invite the Burmese military representative to their summit this year, but they also didn't invite the representative of the national unity government. Firstly, could you explain to our listeners what the NUG is? Uh, indeed, national unity government has been formed mainly by elected members of parliaments plus representatives from the ethnic revolutionary organizations and civil society organizations. So it is like the government with the uh, both de facto and de jure, you know. So this is like a, a revolution front also. It's not just the simple government, but also is a revolutionary front. So the problem is not with the NUG. I think the ASEANs always having this kind of the non-interference policy. For that reasons, whether it's in Myanmar or the other part of ASEAN, they try not to interfere that much. So that's why I think they try not to invite uh, either, you know, <laughs> either side. That's very easy solution, but not the real solution. Yeah, but I mean, I find it interesting because the EU has recognized the NUG as the legitimate government of Myanmar. So what does this, I don't know, negation by the ASEAN or this attempt to stay neutral mean for the protests in Myanmar? What does it mean for the NUG and for the civil you know, society there? Well, indeed, of course, the NUG cannot do uh running as a proper government from inside the country, you know. The thing is, you know, after the coup attempt, the CRPH, Committee of Representatives from the Pidamsulutu, the uh, General Assembly, they are the all elected members of parliaments according to the result of the 2020 election. And they thought it's 
the wise decisions to make this revolution front, together with the other kind of the representatives from other. Groups, you know, including this kind of civil society and the ethnic armed forces, something like that. So, for the general population, NUG has been recognized very well as a revolutionary government. But I can say, even though some,、uh, not some, almost all the countries, like EU countries and the, some other countries, they still don't. Yet, give the、uh, officially full recognition to the NUG because their、uh, embassies are still inside the country. There might be some kind of the、um, diplomatic problems between their embassies and the military regime. Even though they know military took over the power and make this coup attempt without any legitimate.、Uh, Basis, something like that, but you know, for having some unnecessarily things, they still wants to maintain the status quo, and then they try not to recognize NUG as the one and only government from Myanmar. That's my view. But how important are international recognitions or reactions in a revolution? I mean. I get. I guess for both sides, you know,、uh, from the one side for the the junta, but on the other side also for the people, you know, of the revolution. How important are these international、uh, reactions? Sure, people. I, I haven't seen this. You know, people have high hope for the international community. You know, they cannot do much, but what they believe if the international community have very clear vision and. More shared approach and shared determinations. How to deal with the military and how to deal with the revolutionary fronts in order to protect their lives. That's why they have been calling like the responsibility to protect, etc., etc. But after some times, they notice no one is willing, and then they have not much high hope for the international community right now. So it's pretty. Sad and tragic because you know the injustice and the very brutal atrocities against its own civilians has been going on, and without any doubt, you know, the military what they are doing right now is unbelievably very、uh, self-damaging to its own people, own country, own natural resources, everything. But there is not enough action from the international community, making the military regime have more confidence on what they are doing. On top of that, there are a couple of other giant powers in the war backing up them. You know, maybe for this,、uh, the other countries dare not to face this, something like that. That's why I think the international. It, it's hard to see international community. You know, every country has its own interest and own、uh, concern. So that's making the people from Myanmar pretty much sorry. You know, to learn about. But if the international community and the majority giant powers should have、uh, shared concerns and clear vision and working together not just making asean as a sole responsible and 
feasible stakeholders to handle the Myanmar issue, that can make leverage of the process. Right now, I can see the military cannot control on the ground very well. They have been failing in so many battles in so many fronts dealing with the People's Defense Forces and the Ethnic Armed Resistance Forces. So in that case, the pressure, especially the political pressure or the diplomatic pressure, can work more than ever. You know, they having failing in the operational things on the ground. That's why the thing is not just the economic sanctions, but also the other political and the diplomatic and more uh, practical way to protect the people of Myanmar on the ground can leverage the process to end the military dictatorship. I would like to go back to the role of the democratic leader Aung San Suu Kyi. In 2016, the Rohingya genocide caused a very big international reaction and the Nobel Peace Prize winner and democratic icon, I'd say, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, was back then heavily criticized by Western media for positioning herself not strongly enough against the genocide of the Muslim minority. Just recently, she was granted partial pardon for her 33-year-long prison sentence, which factually means uh, six years less. What role do you believe did and does Suu Kyi play in the revolution and for the civilians in Myanmar? Well, indeed, I think our political issues and the situation is very, very complicated and it has very long history. That's why a lot of people, especially the international media, cannot understand deeply and thoroughly, then they try to oversimplify and then making kind of not the perfect judgment, I might say, you know. So in the past, what have happened is directly linked to the 2008 Constitution's fault, you know. So according to this 2008 Constitution, the civilian part of the government cannot do much, and especially in terms of uh, handling the military operation. It is totally out of hand of the civilian part of the government. The military operation is solely responsible and mainly maneuvered by the commander-in-chief. This is only according to the constitution. So for that reasons, even for us, we have been very disappointed with her decisions to make a deal with the military. But indeed, there was not a deal, you know. It's because of the restrictions of the 2008 constitution and because of her overconfidence about the, she can convince the military to make change. But it was not. For that reason, her only resistance, it, unbelievably, she didn't have any plan beyond the coup. She can predict there will be the coup attempt, but she doesn't give any uh, strong, detailed instructions how to combat it. But the way she uh, makes her own resistance is not to cooperate with the military, especially with the commander-in-chief, because three days before the coup, there was a serious kind of the meeting and the, the negotiation was convincing her 
to nominate him as the president and to, you know, not to call the parliament and then solve the they are kind of the bargaining. But she decided not to deal with him. She decided not to give any power. So this is the one strong resistance from her side. She can, when she was as the state councillor, she took her responsibility, whether it is not directly her own fault or not, she was happy to take responsibility to face the criticisms or everything. But she cannot let the military to take over the whole country's future without having any legitimacy. So this is the only one uh, resistance she did, I can see. So she is kind of leading as an example Uh, like not to cooperate. What you said, she was, you know, kind of an example to the people. Do you think that revolutions in general need an idol like she is, someone to lay their hopes upon? I mean, I was thinking of the revolutions in the Arab world in, the, you know, around 2011, the, the so-called Arab Spring. And in many of these countries, there was not an idol or a leader or, you know, somebody to follow. And in most countries, the revolutions failed. So do you think it is important um, that you have an idol, that you have somebody who is a leader in a revolution like she is? Indeed, she's, she's not as the idol for this spring revolution. You know, everybody, uh, there was a saying that uh, every single wagon has its own driving seats, you know, something like that, you know. So it's a, everybody should just lead ourselves. So this spring revolution, obviously, she is not the idol, you know. Nobody recognized her as the idol for the spring revolution. She just contributed simply as her resistance, showing that she cannot uh, comply with it. But the current revolution is very much like multi-center, I might say, you know, no more focusing on one and only. So even for the national unity government, you know, right now national unity government is the revolution front, but at the same time, there are other strong kind of the armed resistance groups still leading in their own territory. So it's more like decentralized revolution. So very simple. That's why you can notice, you know, there are so many other revolutions more or less the same time as happened in Myanmar. For example, like Belarus, you know, Hong Kong, Afghanistan, Iran, something like that. All these revolutions has now very, very weak and it's gone. But in my country, since February 2021, still going on. It has been more than 900 days already. And the revolution is even having the momentum of controlling administrations on the ground. And also, as you know, is the national unity government tried to make the The fulfill the gap of the administrative halo, for example, the education and health services. 
because of the civil disobedience movement and the poor management from the military regime, there is not enough the education and then health services on the ground. But the NUG is not just using the People Defense Forces to fight against the military, but also having its uh, resources and making most possible way to provide these services to the peoples in need. So for that reason, it's totally not the idol-based revolution. The Spring Revolution is pretty much decentralized, and the funding itself also pretty much decentralized. It's not just from the international community's contribution. It's simply from the peoples, especially from the diaspora, Myanmar, you know. It's very interesting that you say it's so decentralized and multi-centered, you know, centered because that brings me to my next question. Because Myanmar is a country consisting of a lot of different ethnicities and religions, so very, you know, multifaceted, which is also a very big factor of identification among the Burmese people. In the history of the civilian uprisings of Myanmar, it is, however, remarkable that these ethnicities seem to lay their differences aside and fight together. These tendencies can also be seen now in the current conflict. Could this be the start of the downfall of religious nationalism, or does that have more of a symbolic or pragmatic character, seeing the urgency of the situation on the ground? I might say all these kind of the religious kind of the, what you mentioned, is not because of the people's simple decision. It has been well-planned magic by the military, you know. For that reason, people don't pay much attention on that issue, you know. They know, of course, they have been misled by the military's black magic, but now they understand that's why uh, the revolution aims not just to get rid of the uh, military dictatorship, but also the other kind of the for example, like the permanizations or kind of the religious domination, everything, you know. So people in Myanmar, they believe this is the revolutions, not just physical, but also kind of the conceptual, you know. So that's for that reason, the moment, the current moment is the very integrated moment, I might say, you know, more than ever, people on the ground are very much integrated each other, appreciate each other, rule of the each other. So, of course, they are still fighting against their identity, their territory, each other, uh, the idea of how to build the federal democracy. Of course, they are keep going on. But still, it's pretty much healthy debate is going on. And they are very open and ready to make The decisions later, right now, their aims and objective is to get it off the, the military dictatorship first. You know. I find that very interesting because, as we just discussed, this is not the first time that the people in Myanmar are standing up against the regime. Yet the situation always seems to go back to war and revolution and coup d'etat and counter-revolution. Do you think that lasting change in Myanmar is possible? Do you feel like there is maybe now, right now, a moment that is pivotal? Yes, of course, because the problem is this military, since 1962, this is the generation of the very much toxic 
mindset of the military. It has been carrying all these black magic and very bad atrocity against its own people from 62 until now. But in between, they make some kind of the misleading relaxation and the international community and a lot of people has been misled and have been pretty much appreciate. Even these, you know, ex-military guys as the civilian government saying that, oh, they're doing great things. They are on the right track. It was not indeed, to be frank, you know. So now I think everybody should make the clear observations, the real reasons why we having keep doing this revolution, the rebellion attitude, etc., etc., is simply because of this very militant terror military right now. So that's why people of Myanmar are thinking of having a new army instead of this very uh, corrupted. The way they recruit is like the human trafficking, you know. So that's why either the quality and the quantity of this current army is pretty much corrupted. There are so many evidence how much they badly making all the corruption, even for their own institution. At the moment... You are a writer in residence at the Freundeskreis Schloss Wiepersdorf, and you were a fellow at the Martin Roth Initiative in Berlin that protects artists, writers, and cultural workers by giving them shelter in Germany. You stated, though, in multiple interviews that you reject the concept of exile. Do you see yourself as being in exile right now? Uh, it's hard to believe I, I'm in exile. I still dedicate it, <laughs> you know, I, I can just say I keep myself away from my beloved country for some period. That's all. I I I believe I still connected to my beloved country. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. I I, I had to accept <laughs> being exiled. Yeah. Still. And how does your activism and your engagement here in Germany differ from working directly from Myanmar? How different is it? Uh, well, it's it's different, very, very different. But I think we need to be grateful to the IT technology that's making more easy to be in touch with my country, my people. So in that sense, uh, I feel that's why I say, yeah, I'm still not away from my country. Yeah, You're still there and you're I'm still, still participating. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Matida, for being with us, for your time and for the interview. Thank you. That leads us to the end of this episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to recommend Die KulturmittlerInnen to others. If you like to learn more about foreign cultural policy, you can listen to our previous episodes. They are available on all common streaming platforms like Spotify, Deezer and Apple Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at podcast at For more information on our organization, IFA, Institut für Auslandsbeziehungen, visit ifa.de. With that, I say goodbye. My name is Amira El Al. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.